Thanks for joining us on From Lemons to Limoncello, where life is about more than just turning lemons into lemonade. It's about taking the sweet and the sour flavors of our journey, mixing in some inspiration, and distilling it all into a life that's as bold and exquisite as a glass of limoncello. I'm Lisa Marie, and I want to thank you for joining us as we toast all of the moments that define and connect us, because the only thing better than exploring the recipes for life that make it worth living is savoring every sip of the journey with friends. Hey there, it's Lisa Marie, and today I'm so excited to be having a conversation with the very talented and wise David Sabella. David originated the role of Mary Sunshine in the 1996 Broadway revival of Chicago with B.B. Newworth and Riking and Joel Gray. But we also came up through the same community theater group eons ago, eons ago, when we were both aspiring performers. And well, he's just remained a dear friend. And when you listen to his interview on this podcast episode, you'll understand why. So David has performed as himself in original solo cabaret shows at places like Feinstein's 54 Below and the Metropolitan Room in New York City, and also in drag all around the world as his amazing alter ego, Amanda Reckonwith. He's a winner of the Luciano Pavarotti International Voice Competition, a tenor who has also sung as a male soprano in opera houses all around the world, singing big operatic roles traditionally held for females like Aida and Madame Butterfly. And if you're a vocalist and you want to learn from all of David's vast experience, he also happens to be a vocal coach, and you can find him at davidsabella.com. But none of that is why I asked David to the show today, because equally impressive is who David is as a human being. He's a gay man who grew up during a time when it just wasn't safe to be one. He's now a dad of two beautiful adopted daughters, both young women of color. And he's one of those rare people who has just seen really hard times, but always seems determined to turn that hardship into something really meaningful. And his enormous talent is just equally matched by his enormous heart. I think that's a combination that makes his performances so moving, but it also just makes him a great friend. Today, we're going to talk about living life authentically and how being unapologetically yourself is the key to everything. David, it's always so good to catch up when we can. I already talked about you so that everyone could get an idea of who you are and what you do. But before we dive into the really juicy conversation that I want to have today, I just had to share I had the best memory this morning. I don't know if you remember this, but you gave me one of my very first performing arts teaching jobs. 
when I was all about the tender age of 18. Yeah, I did. I How did I do that? <laughs> you did. You did. And it was um, one of the best experiences <gasps> the, of the my white life. Plain, the White Plains Day Camp? Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. yes. The city of White Plains in New York, yes. um, for anyone listening who doesn't know where that is. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the most fulfilling, joyful experiences of my life. And it was all thanks to, you know, David's generosity, because David just has this huge heart and wants to share his art and his spirit with everybody that he comes into contact with. And I was one of the early beneficiaries, I guess, <laughs> of that of that energy that you so generously put out into the world all the time. And so I don't know if I've ever thanked you for that, but it really um, set me on my path to becoming who I am today. So just want to thank you. You know, my gosh, thank you for letting me know that. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, really yeah, 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 yeah. Well, for those of you listening, I did mention during the intro that uh, David played Mary Sunshine in the um, musical Chicago, in the revival on Broadway in, what was that year? 96, 1996. 1996, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he was just phenomenal. And for anyone who doesn't know, the, the male actor in that show, who plays Mary Sunshine, goes through a considerable part of the show as a woman, but there's this big reveal where she pulls off her wig. And I just remember there being this, audible kind of giddy shock in the audience when they realize that she you yeah. uh, have been a man all along and a lot of people had genuinely no idea until that moment I think in large part because your vocals were just so nuanced but the other day David it occurred to me that today younger generations really don't understand what a big deal that was to play a part like that at that time and have a moment like that on stage in the 90s. I mean, that was the deck uh, well, was one of decades. Activism was really starting to ramp up. Right. right. And, and there were so many people from the LGBTQ community that were right. being even attacked and murdered back then. And so many people from the community had been hiding, but were now being encouraged to kind of come out and speak up and challenge these I'm sorry to say, very ugly uh, stereotypes and, and negative pictures that anti-gay and hate groups are painting on the LGBTQ community. So my first question for you is, what was it like to play such a, I, mean, I don't think it's just my opinion, such a historically significant role on Broadway at a time when the LGBTQ community was still in such a struggling place with LGBTQ rights and, um, and perception? Thank you for for that question. And it's twofold. Uh, it, there's two things to consider. One, I didn't even know what a big deal it was. You know, I didn't, mm. I was an actor doing a job, you know. Um, it's only later, and I mean recently, that I have now come back into that uh, form of entertainment uh, with, you know, doing more drag this year and last year, that some of the very well-established like RuPaul now drag queens who have come up to me out of the blue to say, you were the first person I ever saw do that. Mm. You, you, it was an iconic legacy performance that kind of helped me understand what I wanted to do. I didn't set out to do that. I didn't know I was doing that. But there were in the tenure of my being in the show, literally hundreds of boys who would come up to me and go, I didn't know a man could do that. I didn't know you, I didn't know it was possible. I didn't know that was an option. And to put it into 
historical context. Uh, one about the LGBTQ community. We opened in 96 on Broadway. We did City Center in 95, the year before. And in 1995 uh, and thereabouts was just the emergence of the triple medication cocktail that is now so widely used for HIV and AIDS. That was mm. just discovered then. And so the 90s, midnight, were mid throes of major HIV uh, stigma and uh, AIDS awareness and people still dying like crazy, right? So, you know, it was a whole different world. It was a whole different world. Um, and for LGBTQ rights, I mean, the idea of being married, that was not fathomable then. The idea of being a father was not fathomable then, you know. Um, and even the idea of doing what I was doing on Broadway until I did it was not uh, a, a possibility. Like, I remember auditioning for that show. The point is, after I got it, and they said, uh, now we need to find an understudy for you. Do you know anybody? Because there was nobody else who did that. There's, that wasn't a thing that you even aimed for, right? And so I knew one or two people and I, I told them my first choice and they hired him. Period. Wow. Because there was, there was no one else. Now, after the success of the show and 28 years later, it's a common thing. Like now there's Mary Sunshine's coming out of the wall, you know, um, but it was not such a common thing at all. Um, before I did Mary Sunshine, uh, long before, 83 to 80, no, 87 to 93, 87 to 93, I worked with an opera company called La Gran Chena as a male soprano singing opera in drag singing Aida, singing Butterfly, singing Lockham, all that, but in, in drag, because that was the only option for someone with my voice type who could do that on stage. And it wasn't until 1991, now there had always been countertenors in Europe and England and, you know, for Baroque opera and all that, but it really did not hit America in a substantial way until 1991 when Brian Asawa won the Metropolitan Opera competition. And I was in that audience when he sang on the winner's concert. Mm. And my jaw hit the floor and I went, oh my God, I can do that's me. That's what I can do. So that was 91. So I ruminated on that a year and a half or so. I left La Guanchena in 1993 to really study an actual countertenor vocalism and history and Baroque opera and all that. And then I emerged in 95 and started to win all of those same competitions myself and started to be an international singer as a male soprano in opera. And then less than a year later, Chicago happened, like right after the Pavarotti competition. So it all kind of snowballed based on you know what what the what your podcast is about you know being authentic to who you are it all kind of happened because i stepped into what i could do most authentically what i realized oh this is this is what i do yeah this is weird but this is what i do and nobody else does this and i should just do this 
you know. Isn't my, it interesting too how life unfolds that way sometimes? Because totally. I mean, I think, you know, so much of what we try to do with our lives is try to put square pegs into round holes because oh, we're yes. trying to fulfill, you know, a societal expectation of what we should be doing or, you know, what our careers should look like or what we should look like. And we get these opportunities so unexpectedly. And just for anyone listening who hasn't had the opportunity to hear David sing, David, I've heard you sing as David. <laughs> you heard heard you, <laughs> and as a tenor, uh, but I've also heard you sing as a male soprano as, well, you've got this wonderful alter ego, Amanda Reckon with, but in early on when you had sort of started experimenting, I had the opportunity to hear a recording of you, but what was it? it was from Tosca. Let's, let's just listen to a little clip. David, when I tell you I have played this recording for friends <laughs> who say that's that's not a woman, I mean they're in absolute shock. Your voice has the most—I I get goosebumps thinking about it. You just have the most beautiful, rounded tones. But it's not just voice; it's the emotion and the life experience that you bring to the characters that you create or are asked to step into. So let's go back to the character of. Mary Sunshine and talk about how all of that and the social climate of the time relates. You and I grew up in the 70s and the 80s when mm -hmm. there was enormous pressure to conform to what society said a woman or a man should look like or sound like or dress like That's or right. think like. And any deviation from that was risky. Mm -hmm both to a person's sense of acceptance by their yeah. families and and in inner circles but it, when it comes to the lgbtq community there was also a question of physical safety out in the world and yeah. here you were playing a man in drag and setting this historical marker you also said though i'd like to go back to this you said you know marriage was not a thing and being a dad as a gay man was not a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't even something people conceived of at that point. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think it was 1996 when President Clinton signed um, Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage very specifically as a legal union between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. And when I think about all this, we've come so far, yet we still have so far to go. I had a conversation with, with a relative of mine who is a biracial gay young man who was sharing that someone, a celebrity, I can't remember who, because I'm I'm getting old enough where I don't know a lot of the celeb younger <laughs> celebrities that are out now. Yeah. But but this particular celebrity had come out as as bi. And his friends were all saying, I wish that we could get away with not talking about someone's right. 
sexual orientation right. and just talk about who they are as people. And I really found myself on the on the fence because I, on the one hand, agreed, and I think it's beautiful, and I think we should be thinking that way. We are people, let's see each other as people, right? But then I also think about the environment and the culture that you and I grew up in. You know, all of our friends had to hide and they fought for the ability of younger generations to show up and speak up as their true selves. So I almost feel like anything less may be dishonoring them in some way, you know? And I've heard the horror stories about what people were subjected to. I mean, people being locked in lockers in middle school and- Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I, was almost, I was almost thrown off the roof in third grade. Of, third Thornwood, grade. of Thornwood Elementary School. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was bad. You know, it was, you know, I was born in the mid 60s. And the idea of hiding prejudice at that point from, from the older generation didn't even think they should hide it. We'd be watching television. And you know, my uncles would come out with you know, goddamn faggot on TV, whoever they mm-hmm. saw, you know, and it made you just freeze in your seat like, Oh, my God, you know, these, these relatives of mine were yelling at the TV for whatever they saw that rubbed them the wrong way. And it wasn't even bad. Let's face it, it was the mid 60s. Like maybe it was a news report about the LGBT community or or gay pride parade or something. It wasn't a lot, whatever it was, it wasn't a lot. And it certainly wasn't salacious. And there was no programming like Will and Grace, but they, they just made no bones about it, you know, and so, or the fact that I wanted to be in theater, you know, and my brother Ernie, who you also know, of course, you know, went into theater before me. That was a big red flag for a lot of the older generation. And oh my God, you know. So they made no bones about hiding it. Today, however, I'm really glad we're past that. I say bury it with the older generation. I would love to not have to talk about who sleeps around with who. It just doesn't matter. Kids are coming out much younger now and we think that there's this uh increase in the percentage of who's gay or now the big thing is who's trans or who's you know gender fluid or whatever there's not a big increase it's just that we're now talking about it someone on uh TikTok or one of the things recently said you know she equated it she was much smarter than i some doctors like it's the same thing you can say about in the mid 60s when we decided to stop making everyone write with their right hand. Because mm. you used to have to write with your right <clears> hand. <throat> you were trained to be dominant with your right hand. And suddenly they stopped doing that and allowed people to be left-handed. And suddenly there was a huge influx of who was left-handed, like that percentage increased. It's an no. excellent point. My grandmother right. used to get wrapped on the knuckles right? because she was writing with right. her left hand. It was terrible. Right. It's not that there's more of them. It's just that now they're able to be seen and without fear, you know? And well, let's talk about another bit of growth too, because you also mentioned that, you know, being, being a parent, an adoptive parent or yeah. uh, even a biological parent, a parent of any, any kind right. as, as a right. gay man was not only frowned upon, it was just a, a non, a non possibility. And you, right your career looks different now because you have you're the proud dad of of two uh, beautiful young 
women of color. Right. I am so, um, I smile when I, I hear your stories because, you know, parenting is not for the weak of heart. It's always no, a challenge. No, it is not. You Par- are- parenting and drag takes balls. Um, I- <laughs> <laughs> um, so Tom, Tom and I, my husband, uh, who passed away in 2019, uh, we were married the very first week that it was legal in Massachusetts. Mm. Like we, they announced that it was going to be legal on the news. And we were there on the very first day in May of 2004. And we had to wait three days for the license and we got married three days later. So we were among the first couples in America to be married within the continental United States. I think Hawaii- You're setting even more historical standards. I love it. (laughs) So Hawaii Hawaii was a little before us, I think, or somewhere off continent was, but, but continental United States, we were in that first four days. And then our first child uh, arrived through adoption a month later. So mm-hmm. it is very possible that we're among the first legally married male couples to have adopted. I don't know. I can't prove it, you know, but just the timing would suggest it's a possibility, right? So we were in Chelsea. We lived on 34th Street and, you know, frequented all from 34th Street to 14th Street, Chelsea in Manhattan with a stroller, you know, and the looks that we would get, Mm -hmm. you know, this was before I lost friends over it. No, I like we fostered five children over the course of 10 years, not even 10, five years. Like we had a lot of infants come in and out of the house. Um, We adopted two of them. When the second child, when our second child came to us adopted, uh, I had a friend who who could not fathom why we wanted a second child. He couldn't understand it. It's like, you you already have one. Why? Why do you want another one? It was like having too many handbags. It was like an accessory for him. It was like, you you already have one. So was he straight or, or No, he was gay. Like that's the, like like gay men just could not conceive of why would you want to do that? You know, like you know, and looking back, they may not have been wrong because, you know, there's no disposable income. There's no nothing like there it all goes, you know, but, you know, the drive for creating a family for carrying on the generations. I remember the very day, the moment that I decided I want to have a family. And it was at a point in my career as a singer where things were humming along. I was on Broadway, I was singing opera on hiatus from the show all over the world. I had been to Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center several times. And I think this was like four, five or six, the sixth time I was at Carnegie Hall as a lead soloist with an orchestra, as a male soprano, as a countertenor. And I was in dressing room A of Carnegie Hall. And I thought to myself, is this going to be the rest of my life? Is the rest of my life going to be a legacy of CDs and recordings and memorabilia of shows I did? No, I don't. I need it to be more. Mm. And I thought, I want to have a family. I want to have kids. That's the thing. And at the time, and I've not really spoken about this before, 
because of where we were in the mid 90s and, and how old I was, which is in my 30s and blah, 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 and, and what I had grown up through, because, you know, we were at the tail end of the sexual revolution, too, you know, we were all a little crazy. We were all a little like, wow, there's a lot of liberation going on here. And uh, I thought I have to change my life about this because I would see these these older gays. You know, now I'm I'm older than than the men I'm now speaking about. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I would see these gay men in Chelsea in their late 40s or 50s in the shorty cutoff shorts and the tank tops, and they were living like you know Peter Pan. And I mm -hmm. thought I I can't be that when I'm 50 something. You know, now I'm one to sport a shorty short, I will admit, but only in Puerto Vallarta, but um, or or Fire Island. But um, but I thought I need to change my life because I, honestly, I don't know if I would still be alive if I hadn't, you know. Mm. Uh, and so I moved everything towards uh, adopting. And that was my plan even before I met Tom, you know, and it's one of the things that really drew us together. Is that we both wanted to have kids um, but it was at a time where you know you were looked at twice by the gay community like what is happening why are you being so heteronormative why are you doing that why, like it was a front to them that you'd want to have that so many groups and I'll, I'll never understand it i don't subscribe to it you'll also hear stories about you know women who uh, will frown on you if they are working and have decided not to have children right look at someone who stays at home and does and you know you're you're uh, they take issue with it and vice right. versa but right? here's the thing here's the thing no matter what it is mm. and this again goes right along with your theme of the podcast people get frightened when you step into your authenticity amen that's what it is no matter amen. what that is and I want to go there with you, David, because yeah. you have that in spades. And the reality is so many people in the world are living these half-lives, right? One of the things that I admire about you has, has been watching you evolve as a performer and, a, and as a person over the years, how you choose to express yourself particularly. I mean, you allow yourself to be so vulnerable and you tell very, very personal stories in your cabaret shows. You find the humor in the heartbreak. You've you've got you've got a cool fusion of fashion style in the clothes <laughs> you wear. You know, by traditional descriptions, I, I've seen you wear clothes that you know society would define as a combination of. And I, I don't subscribe to this yes, you know, definition. Very gender but, fluid, yes. Yeah, yes. sort of, yeah. you know, masculine and feminine feminine right. elements. You've got a jewelry collection that I want to raid sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, <laughs> your confidence and your warmth are totally contagious when you're in a group of people. You've totally glowed up. And That's it's inspiring. And I but I have to imagine, I mean, going back to the conversation earlier, you know, just talking about your uncles. And I've I've experienced my own in very different ways, childhood experiences of where don't be that, don't don't step into who you are fully. Right. On stage, it was acceptable, but in other places, it wasn't always, right? Sure, sure. I have to imagine that self-expression wasn't always so easy or second nature to you. So 
considering the times, I mean, you could look at this in, in two perspectives. I mean, A, how did you find the courage to step into Mary Sunshine? And B, how, what's your evolution been from Mary Sunshine to David, AKA Amanda Reckon with now and right. how you right. how you present yourself in full alignment today because you do and it's it's just the most contagious, inspiring thing to witness. So that's an interesting uh, progression, right? My, uh, I remember being in college uh, and I was a junior, I think in college and a, a friend of mine, Michael Klausner, who has since passed, God bless him. Uh, he came down the hallway singing in his falsetto Hmm. And I had never heard it, never considered it, never knew it could be a thing, never even thought about singing that high. He was singing the aria Casta Diva from Norma, which I knew because I was a huge Maria Callas fan. And so I just started singing along and I found this voice, did not know how I was, didn't know what was happening. And from then on, it was a party trick. And it evolved as a party trick to make people laugh and I could really do it. And I really sang, but it was, it was out of comedy. Right. And then I took it to my teacher, uh, my voice teacher. And I said, what about this? And again, this was in the mid to late eighties. Counter tenor was not a thing. Male soprano was not a thing. She's like, well, I don't know about that. Um, but we'll, We'll work on it together. She goes, I don't know if there's a career in that. I don't think there is, but this is something she said to me that I tell all of my students. She said, I'm going to step out of that decision because there's one thing I know about you is that you are the greatest living authority on your talent. Mm-hmm. nobody knows your talent better than you so if you want to go into this direction and something is telling you to do that then i'll go on this journey with you but i don't know where it's going to lead great for her to say that okay so i auditioned rather quickly for la grande Chena and uh immediately got it and right out of college started singing male soprano in drag all over the world 20 weeks a year throughout Europe for five years. And, you know, that's how I cut my teeth on it. And then came 1991 and watching Brian Asawa, as I said, and then discovering that there was a possibility to do this not in drag. And then I evolved in that way. And, you know, like I said, you know, two years later, I won the Pavarotti competition, the Met Eastern Regional Finals, the Carnegie Hall Oratorio competition. Like suddenly, I was a countertenor on on that international type of level. And then six months later, Chicago happened. Now, Chicago happened because two people made sure to tell the the casting director. One, a dear friend of mine and a casting director who was a great supporter of my career in music theater, his name is Barry Moss. He called me when the Chicago notice came out and he said, does Jay Bender know you can do that? Because he knew, right? And Jay Bender was casting Chicago. And I said, no, he goes, well, yeah, I'm going to tell him. So, and then my brother, Ernie, who was on Broadway for many, many years, he had worked with Walter Bobby. He called me, he said, does Walter know you can do that? Walter was the director for Chicago. 
I said, I don't know, Walter. He goes, okay, I'm going to call him. So those two people called casting and direction and I got an audition. So when I got an audition in the audition waiting room, like who auditioned for that role? Sam Harris, who was, you know, uh, what was it? What was it? Idol star? What was the, uh, American Idol? No, no. Before no. that, some, the star, the, oh my God, I forget. Oh, it'll, it'll come to us. Yeah. It wasn't American Eventually. Idol. It, was, it predated that. Right. But I, but I remember him. He was yes. like the first huge winner of a reality show TV, you know, so, and he'd been on Broadway lots before, and he was on Broadway in Greece. I think he was at that moment. So, and Billy Porter. Billy who, Porter. No yes. kidding. Yes. And so, and I heard them both sing Mary Sunshine and they did a great job and did great renditions of it and very different than mine. But I walked in like the opera diva that I knew I was, right? And I walked in and sang Mary Sunshine like an opera diva. I turned my back to the audition table and sang the first three trills with my back to them, turned around on the high note of the last trill and Walter Bobby's jaw was on the floor. <laughs> and and I got the job before I left the room. Like I knew, boom, like, okay. And so we did the little city center thing for a two week of rehearsal and a weekend of performances. And that was it, done. And then I went back to the world of opera and I was ooh, being ooh. an opera singer. And they called me a few months later and said, well, we're gonna go to Broadway and we want you to go with us. And they were opening in November and I was under contract to sing the title role of Handel's Julius Caesar with an opera company with a recording contract attached. It's like, I, I can't not do that because I'm already under contract. And the general manager uh, over the phone said, you're going to pass up originating a role on Broadway to go do a regional opera for, you know, for six weeks. I'm like, I have no choice. I'm under contract. Um, end of story. I passed on the Broadway show, hung up the phone. That was it. I was an opera singer. Done. Two months later, in I think August, uh, Walter Bobby calls me on the phone and he said, what the f is wrong with you? <laughs> I said, what's the matter? He goes, why are you not doing this show? Why are you the holdout? And I said, Walter, I'm under contract with an opera company. Now, thank God, Walter's husband was an opera singer at the Met. Oh, I think he was in the ensemble or the choir, I forget, but he worked at the Met. So he knew that these opera contracts were years in advance. And he said, wait, 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 that's the issue? I said, yes. He goes, what are the dates? When do you need to be out? And I told him all the gigs that I had lined up for the first year of the, of the Chicago contract. He said, wait right there. And three minutes later, the producer herself, Fran Weisler called me and said, okay, Walter explained what the problem is. We're going to let you out to do the opera. We want you to open the show. And that's how I got to Broadway. Now, here is the thing, going back to your podcast and something my father told me all his life. Speak your truth. Mm -hmm. If you speak your truth, the best thing will happen. So I spoke my truth. I, I knew I couldn't break the contract. I knew I couldn't do it. And what is meant to be will come back around for you when you speak your truth. Okay. David, thank God you had the wherewithal. And, and thank God, too, your teacher supported you in following your own direction, right? Because 
this comes back to what we were talking about before. If you try to do things the way everybody else do, right. does things, that's right. You you aren't being a you're a you're not speaking your truth. B right. you're not stepping into alignment with who you are because right. we are all unique. We really right. really are. But I heard this saying once that said, "Stop asking people." for directions to places they've never been. That's right. That's right. And so imagine if you never had taken that opportunity to step into your power, which was incredibly unique, literally your own voice. Unheard of, like absolutely not. Like that was at the time, the only role on Broadway written for a male soprano. The only other roles on Broadway written for a male soprano were written also by John Kander in The Visit, and one of them was written for me. Mm, I love it. Because of my coming to know him and doing Chicago and, you know, my association with them. Uh, John is always, you know, he's an opera lover, so he always includes this soprano tour de force thing in all of his shows, you know, and for Chicago, that was me. Yay. Um, now I want to, I want to continue the ball because here's the thing after stepping into my truth for all of that, and then stepping into my truth for having kids and being married, I had kids and suddenly I thought my truth had changed. Right. Mm -hmm. I altered. Sometimes my, it does. Yeah. Sometimes altered, we evolve, you know? Yeah. But I, I altered my course out of fear. Oh, not good. Yeah. That's not good. Right. I altered my course out of fear because I thought, I don't know if this will continue to make enough money to raise a family. So I went into just full-time teaching, voice teaching. And I am a full-time voice teacher still online and live, but I gave up the whole sort of drag aspect for many, 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 many years. I stepped out of performing for about almost, well, almost 20 years. Um, and then in 2015, well, I guess 16, 2016, I started to come back to performing a little bit and 16, 17, 18, doing these cabaret shows. I got contracted to write the book. So you want to sing cabaret. So I took that 18, 19 to do that. Then we had a pandemic in 20. Then I came back out in 21 uh, again as a male singer is singing cabaret. I'll mention at this point, I have an album on all the streaming services called Time Heals. So you can just search my name and Time Heals and it'll come up. But it wasn't until 2022 that a friend of mine who had worked with me decades ago as a male soprano, right? A pianist said, hey, come sing on my Gay Pride show. I said, sure. And I said, why don't I do it as Amanda? I don't know what made me think of that. And I had nothing. I didn't have a piece of makeup or a wig or nothing. Thought, Let's just do it. It'll be fun. And so Amanda Reckon With was reborn June of 2022. And since then, it has been nonstop. She's gone global. She has a, her own website and shop. It's amazing. Like, I didn't think I should do it quite literally because... I thought, well, the kids are small and how weird is that to see dad and drag and blah, blah, blah. No, I can't do that. Can't do that. I made that decision. I thought I was being a good parent and 
believed what everyone else was saying about how drag was not appropriate for that and can't do that. I didn't know at the time that I was doing that, but I bought into it. And then when they saw Amanda, now my kids are 20 and 16, so now they're quite older and young adults, but they freaking love her. They come to every show like, oh my God, dad, that's fantastic. I, why haven't you done this all your life? I'm like, because I thought it would ruin you. <laughs> I thought it would scar you forever. But I you think know. by not being authentically who we are, it's it's actually a disservice to our kids. Well, it how can is. we teach them to to step into yes, their full exactly power if right. we're not willing to do it ourselves? You know, exactly right, exactly right. And so I'm really I'm very happy that they said this to you, and I'm really yeah. You oh, never yeah. shared that with me before. I love. Oh it. yeah, no, no, that's been the whole journey is that, you know, I was very, very busy being parent and for a large portion of it, single parent because yeah. my husband was very, very ill, most all of our uh, marriage and then passed away. And so there's no time for that when you have to do the other. Like I couldn't right. really take care of myself because I was taking care of them. Now, I also gained a lot of weight during those years, a substantial amount of weight. And I will say that part of the empowerment of stepping back into myself is that I lost 60 pounds. And was it the weight or was it the focusing on you having value enough to care for yourself or both? Well, I think it's both, but I think things happened as I got thinner that I didn't know would happen. Um, for instance, you mentioned my fashion. I would never have thought to have dressed in a gender fluid or androgynous way at the weight that I was, I would not do that. I would, it would never occur to me to do right. that. But suddenly right. feeling younger and fitter and sexier and more able, it's like, yeah, I could, I could wear that. I could get away with that, sure. You know? And so my whole fashion sense, my whole sense of self evolved because literally the weight that had been oppressing me had melted off in so mm. many different ways. And underneath whatever is oppressing you is the real you trying to get out. Always. I agree. And, and I think you hit on something else that was really significant too. I think parents in general have a very difficult time maintaining their identity, their passions, addressing their needs, <laughs> right. their pick, everything in between as parenting evolves. And as you said, I mean, when we're younger, we have the freedom. I I didn't always, it's a, that's a whole story for another time, but you know, most of us, let's just say most of us have the freedom when we were younger to make decisions based on what is best for us as who we are, what's aligned with who we are. I made a lot of choices based out of fear too. And so I that that touches me right in the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, it sucks the wind out of me because it, I made mm -hmm. a lot of decisions based on what I thought I should do, based on, well, security. I mean, that's- We all do that. Really. We all do right? that. I have to say to my students on a weekly basis, some will come in, they'll sing a song, they'll put it in this key or that key or take that note or this note. I'm like, why are you, why are you mm. doing that? And uh, I have to make sure that they are making a choice out of artistic point of view rather than deficit. Don't sing that song because you don't think you can sing the other song, right? Don't don't take that note down because you don't think you can sing higher. You know, like 
make every artistic decision and let's be frank every decision based upon ability and it's not even the wrong word because people don't even know what they're capable of don't make any decisions based on deficit is really thing don't make it's any such a metaphor for life it that really is. is that is because don't make every any decision i'm afraid i'm afraid to like go and be who i really want to be so i'm going to stay in this nine to five job no that is a decision you made based on deficit on your own fear of something you don't know yet right don't base a decision on deficit you know so good david so so good i couldn't have asked for better <laughs> oh my god soundbite waiting to happen um last question for people who are kind of living those half lives they're feeling trapped. They're feeling unfulfilled. Sometimes they don't even know why. And sometimes they don't know it. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And, and you know, these people, they kind of mm -hmm. move through their existence, ignoring their passions, feeling very empty. Or like you said earlier, they stay in jobs they hate because right. it's safe. Or they feel, oh, this one kills me. They feel a need to hide a piece of themselves or maybe their whole selves because right. they're afraid they won't be accepted or worse, they know that they won't be accepted, right. you know, whether it's by a parent or a, a social group, right? And they prioritize that acceptance by family or their partner or society <clears throat> over their own freedom to explore who they are and express who they are. And basically, you know, they sacrifice their happiness. So mm -hmm. And, and to your point, this evolves over time because just as parents, you know, we start off as individuals, we become parents, we have to kind of compromise and then we become the new versions of ourselves when we rediscover ourselves and we have the time again that we didn't have when our kids were younger and then eventually they leave and it's, it's right. a whole other transformation, right? Let's, if you let's, could... let's be honest though, that as parents, our, our big worry is that our kids will be stable, able. Right to live right. on their own, stable, successful, financially successful, you know, so we, from day one, we groom them for a financial stability to relieve us, to relieve our fear, right? That is a decision based on deficit. It all comes okay? back to that. Right. Sure. So instead of be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. We all went through the pandemic, sitting at our homes for a year. Now, and all of a sudden, the gig economy turned around and changed into something else. And now people are like, yeah, I'm not going to work that nine to five job anymore. Why do I have to go in to work when I could do it here? And that's freaking people's heads, right? Because they are not used to that kind of independent thinking, right? But you have to love it. You have to go, okay, where else are we going to go now? If, if that's the case, if we don't all have to work at this nine to five job, if you have the room to do something else and you've always wanted to, and after a year of being at home now, you're going to try open up an Etsy shop or do whatever. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, so I think we're on the cusp of maybe more people coming to that awareness. I think more people than ever, you know, it used to be, I, I would say 2% of people are doing what they love to do. Mm -hmm. 2% of people. It's not enough. No, are doing what they love to do, are, are going to work because they love to go to work and do what they do. And if you are one of those people, you are a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Because 
you love to do what you do. And that, theatrically speaking, performance-wise, that's what's so attractive about someone when they walk in the room. It's like, you could tell they love to do it versus the person who comes in and goes, God, I need this job. I really, I could do this job. I need this job. I need the money. That's never going to get the job. Someone who walks in and goes, I am here to solve a problem. I love doing this. Let's get to work. That gets the job. So you could turn that into every single profession. Yeah. Right. That's not just theater. That's every single profession. Love what you do. Like attracts like. More love of what you do will attract more of what you love to do. You have to kind of create it. You have to embody it. You have to embody it. That's right. So now I tell. What would you say to someone who's. Okay, putting David on the spot. What would you, what would what one piece of advice would you give to the person that's living a half life that's afraid to step into that place of optimism and out of a place of deficit? How would you encourage them to to make that switch when it can be well a little frightening? Uh, I'd get a shadow book. I'd start journaling in a shadow book and deal with what your demons are. And mm-hmm. why you're thinking the way you're thinking, you know, I would do that work. It's, it's spiritual work that has to be done. It's also acknowledging the fact that we are, in fact, spiritual beings having a physical experience on this planet at this time. And once you really embrace that, that's a whole different way of looking at everything. Like as a soul, you came here to do something very specific and you got to be truthful to that. Again, you have to be truthful to that. What did you come here to do? Right? And and then figure that out. So it's a real spiritual kind of connection and work. And the people who figure that out are not only the spiritual millionaires, but they somehow find a way to monetize it and become the financial millionaires because they love what they do and everyone around them can see that. And they love being around them for that. And you know what else I really think? in addition to doing yourself a disservice by not speaking your truth and by not showing up for yourself, mm-hmm. you're doing the world a disservice because whatever you were brought here to do, it's for a reason. Right. And you're the only person who can do it. Right. And it's never too late. Now, I took 20 years off. I raised kids. My sense of self, my humanity is very different now than what it was 30 years ago. Mm. And it needed to be different. I needed to go through that in order to be who I am now, in order to have this amount of success as Amanda and with this performance career and really appreciate it. You know, in my early life, when things just happened hand over foot, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't know what was happening. To me, it was not a big deal. And I look back because everyone else tells me, it was a big deal. Mm. Like you've said it like the other, like when it happens to me that someone stops me in the street or the other last summer at a bar uh, on Fire Island at top of the bay, one of the very well-known RuPaul drag queens, Alexis Michelle, sees me across the bar, comes up, I'm dressed as me. I'm just me having a (laughs) martini at a bar. And he comes up to me Alex, isn't it? And he goes, are you David Sabella? I went, I am. He goes, and he just started this whole thing. Like, I have to tell you that you were like one of the first people I ever saw do that. And he went on now, and he's not the first person to say this. This happens to me a lot. And I don't know 
that about myself. I didn't set out to do that. I'm just trying to live a my measly life, you know. <laughs> you know, well, you know what I'm trying to do, you know. I believe with the entirety of my heart though that that's what makes you such a great performer because it's it's your humility. It's this amazing let's be real David, we we haven't had time to go into it, but right. you've had some pretty heavy Sure. difficult tragedies sure. in your life that you've had yeah. to overcome and you bring it, you bring yeah. it not just to the stage and yeah. the roles that you play and the, and the cabaret acts that you put together, which are just everyone listening, please catch it's informative. It's informative. When you are in a show when New York, you've got to go see him perform, yeah. but you bring such a humanity and a soul to everything that you do, not just on stage, but, but to it your took a life. It took living a life to create yes. that humanity. Yeah. So now I want to say that to people who are listening, it's never too late. I don't feel like it's too late for me. It's not, no, everything you've done up until now has come to this moment of you being here, listening to this, hearing us have this conversation and deciding to move forward. Everything. Because if you have, if you're the person who needs to hear this, then that's why we're saying it. It's never too late to become who you are and who you were meant to be. I adore you. Thanks. Would you, would you tell people where they can find you in case they'd like to take a voice lesson or catch one of your shows or learn more about your book? Sure. I have two major websites. Uh, the one is davidsabella.com. And that's for teaching and that's for performance and you can buy the book there and from there you can find me on youtube all my other uh, social media stuff has to do with amanda so the website is amandareckonwith.com and then my facebook and instagram and all it's all some sort of version of amanda reckonwith's underscore d sabella look to find me there well, i'm going to drop all of this into my show notes the summary yeah, sure David, I adore you. I just cannot thank you enough for joining me today. I think you're just a bundle of life experience and wisdom, and I'm proud that, to call you a friend. And, that means uh, I'm really, really old. That's all that means. Oh, well, <laughs> if, if I've known you this long, it means I am too. So thank you for your humanity, your, your wisdom, your stories. I just love you to pieces, and uh, it's been a great chat. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. If you like what you heard in this week's episode, I hope you'll take a moment to follow the podcast. To do that, just go to the From Lemons to Limoncello show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, tap the plus sign in the upper right corner, or click the follow button. While you're there, I'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a five-star rating or a review. And if someone you know would appreciate it, I hope you'll share this episode with a friend. Here's to turning life's lemons into limoncello. Until next time, Cheers. Oh, and by the way, remember David and I were racking our brains over a show that we couldn't remember the name of? Yeah. Star Search. <laughs> oh.